You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So it is almost the end of 2023, and just when some of you thought you could sit back and sip some eggnog, or in my case, some Theraflu, President Biden on Monday came out with a rule that basically discriminates against 86% of the construction industry by requiring project labor agreements on all federal projects more than $35 million. And it's one of those things that unless you're following the news expressly to figure this stuff out, you probably wouldn't have seen in the mainstream media. Well, joining me today is Ben Brubeck, who's a returning guest to Labor Relations Radio. He is Vice President of Regulatory Labor and State Affairs at the Associated Builders and Contractors. So we're going to talk a little bit about what President Biden just did and its ramifications on all of us, really. In any case, here's Ben Brubeck from the Associated Builders and Contractors. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Ben Brubeck from Associated Builders and Contractors, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. How are you? I'm great, Peter. Good to see you. It has been a while, and there's been a lot of stuff going on. And I don't know where you want to start, but the the big news this week seems to be the project labor agreements. Is that is that the biggest news this week, or is that... Yeah, I think for for the construction world, yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, I think your your listeners may not know what happened. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about what, what's gone on. So the Biden administration has been promoting project labor agreements on taxpayer-funded projects, and uh, both on federal projects and federally-assisted projects um, throughout the, the entire administration, really, on a variety of regulatory policies they're putting out. But the latest is this executive order that was issued in 2022 that is now uh, matured through the rulemaking process and has been a final rule. And uh, what this says is that all federal contracts of $35 million or more must be uh, subject to a project labor agreement. And if you're not in the construction industry, what a project labor agreement means high level is that union contractors and unionized workers will, will build the project. Um, the, the, what they effectively do is they require contractors to get most or all of their workers through union hiring halls, pay into union pension and benefits programs, follow union work rules, and then any workers that are allowed to work on the projects um, either have to pay union dues or union fees or even join a union, depending on what the PLA says. And um, the workers, if there are any non-union workers allowed on a project, uh, will forfeit any of the uh, benefits that they pay into the union programs. Um, so it's a windfall for the unions for any non-union workers allowed on the project. But the effect of these agreements is non-union contractors and non-union workers don't work on PLA projects. So this is a mechanism for the Biden administration to steer contracts to union contractors and get, create jobs for union labor. And both are big donors to, to the Biden administration and the, and the Democratic Party. So this is a way to you know help their friends get money from taxpayers through the, these construction contracts. And you know, as if that's not a bad thing. We know that 
there's a cost to taxpayers for this to reduce competition plus the requirements in these PLAs end up driving up construction costs. And we know that um, PLAs increase the cost of construction between like 12% and 20%. So effectively, Americans are getting fewer, you know, roads, schools and bridges and other infrastructure as a result of these policies that they're pushing out. Um, and we we know there's a huge scale labor shortage in the construction industry right now. It's about a half million people this year. Um, and 88% of the construction workforce uh, does not belong to a union. So, you know, they're they're creating an artificial skilled labor shortage by putting this policy in place and uh, locking out almost nine out of 10 construction workers in the industry across America. Um, so that's going to increase costs and slow down these projects and create a host of problems. But they seem to not care. And they're hoping that this forces everyone into joining unions and paying union dues and and uh, plumping up their coffers. So, um, you know, that's... Well- $35 million as a threshold, that's basically a snack bar at a roadside stop, right? <laughs> These days, yeah. We've seen a, uh, construction material costs go up about 40% since the start of the pandemic. And then there's all these additional regulatory and permitting costs and everything on top of it. But yeah, $35 million for a federal project, not that much. Um, we think the federal government will probably do about 120 federal contracts a year over $35 million be about a total of 10 to $15 billion worth of work, they'll be affected by this. Um, so our our members who do federal work, our members have built about 50% of all federal contracts over $25 million since 2009. We do a lot of this work, the majority of the work actually, and they're up in arms about this. Um, you know, they've delivered these projects on time and on budget and and safely, and they've, they're diverse, they use small businesses. Um, they are small businesses, they, they're going to get muscled out of these contracts. And so they're really upset about it. And so um, we're looking at litigation to push back on this because um, there there isn't much of a, a, a legislative solution um, to this executive order at this point in time, given how close the margins are in the House and, of course, the Democrats control in the Senate. So, um, you know, it's, it's really a political problem at the end of the day. But we're hoping that there'll be some litigation um, that, that produces some, some victories for taxpayers and free enterprise. Um, but yes, yeah, this is a huge issue on federal contracts and we're seeing independent of this executive order and this final rule from the FAR council, I mentioned a big push for PLAs on federally assisted projects. Um, those are the projects funded by the infrastructure bill. Um, those are also projects um, funded by the chips act uh, as well as uh, the, the inflation reduction act What's interesting is we're seeing this expansion of PLAs into the the private sector. These are private developers who are doing these manufacturing projects and also these clean energy projects through the Inflation Reduction Act. And they're being not they're being told they they should use a PLA or require a PLA. They're not being told they have to, but they're being strongly pushed into that direction through different policies. And these are all done through regulatory actions. These are not. This is not something that's in the legislation or anything like that. So it's really an end around Congress, and it's really an attempt to just, you know, use executive and regulatory fiat to get um, donors additional taxpayer money, essentially. And, you know, that's wrong, and we're, we're going to push back on that. Well, let me back up for a second. When you say federally assisted projects, they're not wholly federal money going in there. So that necessarily wouldn't be the executive order? Right. The executive order is, yeah, the executive order is focused just on direct federal contracts. Those are contracts procured by like the GSA and the the VA and and the Army Corps and direct federal agencies. They're in charge of the contracting process. Federally assisted projects, there's a much bigger pool of money and work. And that's um, being procured by state and local governments 
and even um, private entities. Uh, and so like if they're getting those projects are usually like a mixture of funding. There might be some private. There might be some public, uh, some, some state and local funding. And there may be some federal funding, too. Um, it, it, there, there is federal funding if it's federally assisted. And so those, uh, you know, those, those requirements or those enticements are attached to them as well. And that's a bigger pool of work and that affects more contractors. And that, you know, drives up the cost for a lot of these governments that are, um, just trying to get projects done. And now they've got these federal requirements or encouragements that make it harder for them to, to build as many, you know, roads and schools and bridges as they want to. Well, you just mentioned there's a half million construction worker shortage out there and if it's all being funneled to what represents 12 percent of the construction workforce are there even enough union workers to do the work yeah that's a great question i mean i think that's something that a lot of um, our members have been asking us and our members are mostly non-union contractors we do have some unionized contractors but they've been getting calls from developers saying you know the unions are approaching me to sign a pla um do you think they have enough labor to do this? Because I'm in a state where this project's being built and it's 95% non-union. Where are they going to get these workers? And the answer is they're going to get them from out of state, from the big municipal areas around Philadelphia and Boston and New York and Chicago and, you know, the big cities out West and LA and stuff. Um, you know, down South, there just aren't that many building trades unions. So there's a local worker, local company concern with this. Um, but the other thing is just, you know, the, the the construction industry just has a skilled labor shortage across the board. And that's because of a lot of different reasons. Um, and so the industry is working really hard to recruit new people to make this an attractive industry to come into for young people. Um, we're talking to guidance counselors at the school level and selling the benefits of, you know, not getting in the college debt trap and going into the trades, which is actually something I think people are getting these days with, with all the stories you hear um, trying to change the minds and hearts of parents who, who used to be in the mindset that a blue collar education uh, or blue collar work was not for them. They wanted them to go get education. So um, we're changing those minds and more people are getting into the trades, which is great. Um, however, um, you know, there are also policies that they, the Biden administration is doing around apprenticeship that are trying to, you know, favor unions as well as um, make it harder for apprenticeship programs that are, would be new or, you know, uh, to, to, to be developed. And there's a, a rule recently issued as a proposed rule from the Department of Labor related to apprenticeships, which has got the industry very concerned as well. Yeah, let's talk about apprenticeships a little bit. So an apprenticeship is essentially um, taking taking a young worker, training them over a period of time to become a skilled trades person, right? Right. Unions have been doing that forever, but there's also a lot of non-union apprenticeship programs. And now what is the Biden administration doing with that? Yeah, so uh, ABC has about 450 what they call government-registered apprenticeship programs offered by our chapters across the country. And our members, individual companies, have uh, their own registered apprenticeship programs too. And what effectively they do is they um, do a four or five year program that's a combination of classroom and on the job training. And um, they effectively will get these new people into the industry skilled up in a specific trade. And um, it leads to a terrific career in construction. And, uh, you know, this is why you, you earn while you learn. You don't go into debt. Um, either the employer or another arrangement pays for this education. And uh, it's a big commitment. It's a four or five year program. 
Um, and we, we support this as part of an all of the above solution to workforce development. There's other ways to to skill uh, the construction industry, get them into the industry. It's not just about registered apprenticeship programs, but the unions love registered apprenticeship programs. They 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 only do it through this way effectively. And in the construction industry, about 75% of all participants in registered apprenticeship programs are from union programs. So when the Biden administration is either encouraging apprenticeship programs or requiring apprenticeship programs, um, they are effectively saying we want union contractors and people who are in these programs, which are mainly union, to to get this work. And they made it even more complicated with this new proposed rule out of the Department of Labor saying uh, effectively that certain requirements have to be met now uh, for new apprenticeship program providers. A lot of these new new requirements are going to discourage employers from either creating new programs or continuing new programs. We think at the end of the day, it's going to end up, um, you know, decreasing participation in uh, in apprenticeships across the board, which is problematic. Yeah, contributing to the already short workforce. Exactly, exactly. You know, contributing to the the, the shortage of skilled labor, and, and I think that that's really going to undermine the investments taxpayers have made in the construction industry, um, you know, uh, or infrastructure in general, it's just going to be, a, it's going to reduce the speed of these projects. It's going to reduce um, the the cost effectiveness of these projects if they just don't have the labor to do it. Right. Is there any good news on the horizon? <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, well, well, I'll say good, good news in the sense that the apprenticeship proposed rule is, is, um, under a it's a proposal so the public has 60 days to comment on it and try to make it better so we're encouraging uh the public to take a look at the rule closely it's a big rule it's 779 pages so wow. we are we are we are combing through the details and figuring out how it impacts everybody but uh they all have 60 days to comment on that we're hoping it'll be longer than that so we can make it a little bit of a better rule there are some good things in the rule about reciprocity of apprenticeship programs between uh between states and that might be helpful but we just don't know how it's going to work in practice yet so we can make it a better rule, although I'm not going to hold my breath. I think that the you know that there are provisions in there that are intentionally pro-union or or make it a lot more difficult for employers to participate. That I think that it's it's going to result in in a lack of interest and uh, again exacerbate our skilled labor shortage. So um, we'll be we'll be looking at that um, on the PLA front. I think the litigation is we've got some good arguments there. I think there's a good opportunity to to kill that rule or at least slow it down or kill parts of it. So I'm optimistic there. Um, but the, uh, you know, the other good news is, is like the, the construction industry does have a lot of work um, on the government side of the equation, although there is some softening in the, um, the private side in certain marketplaces. You know, we're seeing a little bit of a drawback in investment on infrastructure in, in, uh, or in construction in certain markets. You know, commercial uh, building has certainly slowed down a little bit in certain markets and you know, most of the other industries are following demographic trends or, um, you know, technology, healthcare, those types of things. We've seen some growth data centers, that kind of stuff has done really well too. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that the slowdown in certain areas is due to the increase of the, uh, interest rates, inflation, et cetera. Yeah. It's a combination. You got the interest rates, borrowing is a lot more expensive. Um, you've got, you know, the hollowing out of the commercial real estate to some degree by people working from home or people leaving cities um, that can't get their act together in terms of making it a safe workplace or, or they're overtaxing people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're seeing a number of different reasons in different marketplaces um, going forward. 
We've also seen the sort of birth of these mega projects, which we haven't seen too too much of, but we've got these huge manufacturing projects for EV batteries and EV cars and clean energy and, um, you know, these microchip projects. And these are huge, huge multi-billion dollar projects. Um, so for, for from a contractor's perspective, that's a really interesting market. Um, you know, you can get in a job and it might be a multi-year job and you make a lot of money there. Um, and it, you don't have to move your crew around. You can kind of keep your crew there. Um, and so that, that, that's something that we're seeing these big projects pop up all over as a result of some of these investments, uh, made by the government, but also because I think oh, there's a lot of effort to onshore investments domestically, um, for a lot of our key issues, just because we saw what happened with the pandemic and we saw what happened with China. And I think there's, been a push to get things back here and 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 create that prosperity here. So, um, from a domestic you know domestic defense perspective, I think we've seen a lot of that move over here too. Yeah, that kind of opens a wider topic, and I'm not sure this is probably the right forum for it. But there's this whole deglobalization like conversation going on. Like we're now entering a phase of more regionalization as opposed to globalization. I don't know if that's tied to what you're seeing, but I've been kind of following this with some interest. Yeah, you probably know more about it than I do, but you know, one thing about construction is that it, it for for our marketplace, you know, the construction happens on American soil. It, you know, it, right. it, it's a domestic product, right? Um, you know, you don't hear too much about people building a bunch of construction, uh, you know, Lego is what you think for a building or something and then shipping it overseas. Usually it's usually, uh, everything's done here. Um, so, you know, there's that, that, that aspect of it. Right. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this in joint employer issue. And I know this is bigger than construction, but this is big issue. I would imagine for the construction industry as well, the, the NLRB, coming out with their joint employer rules. Are, are you hearing anything about that? Yeah, well, we're, we're super involved in that. You know, we have filed uh, litigation challenging the NLRB's joint employer rules. So we're certainly all over that. Um, and we were part of the original effort um, to support it. So it's basically the Trump NLRB rule on joint employer, which provided some clear criteria for our companies to determine whether they're a joint employer or not. You know, we asked for clarity and, and we, we, we thought that that rule at that time was good. Um, we're concerned now that this new proposal by the NLRB is, is really problematic because the way that we read this is everyone's a joint employer in the construction industry. I mean, you construction industry is the ultimate team sport. You, you know, a prime contractor is definitely controlling some of the, aspects of subcontractors activity on a job site, you know, when to, when to show up, what are they doing? The hours, the safety requirements, um, all of those things in our industry has traditionally been a, a number of companies coming onto a job, working together, totally separate companies, but delivering a final product together. So we we've read that this is, you know, going to create a whole bunch of burdens on our contractors and subcontractors and their relationships with each other. And, and, uh, we think they're going to have more liability and it's going to make it harder on small businesses. And we think it's just overly overbroad and, and it's, um, it's going to hurt the economy. It's going to, it's going to slow down progress in the construction industry because we've relied in this, this understanding that they weren't joint employers. And I think that the NLRB is trying to say, no, you are a joint employer. And so everyone's reevaluating that and um, we're hopeful that this litigation is, is going to end it. 
So Ben, for the listeners who are not involved in construction, and when you use the term prime contractor, subcontractors, you're talking about and I'm just going to use this more as a pun, the ABC company, right? Mm -hmm. They're a prime contractor. You've got, say, a commercial job, a whole bunch of different subs on there that could be carpenters, it could be plumbers, electricians, drywallers, painters, all those could be subcontractors, right? Right, right, exactly. Yep. And, and so if, hypothetically, they're all now joint employers, you know, they can all be unionized by a trade or multiple trades. And that's kind of the risk. If you've, if you're a prime contractor and you hire a drywall contractor, for example, and they're not so good with their employees and those employees want to unionize, well, that can suck in the prime contractor, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're trying to, the, the goal of the, the NLRB's rule is to make it easier to unionize um, these smaller companies as well as unionize the big companies by getting your foot in the door. Right. So we think this is sort of the the opening of that Pandora's box um, to some degree, and and um, it, you know I think that everyone's trying to figure out what is what does this rule exactly mean for them going forward, and what are the what are the risks, and how do we how do we address it? And it's for a small business. I mean, this is just doesn't make any sense. You know, you're you're trying to scratch your head and figure this out, and you got to hire a bunch of attorneys to come in and and help you sort this out and, and figure out. What are your what's your risk? What's your liabilities? Um, just by accepting a job, you know, it didn't used to be that way. You know, so um, our industry is certainly joining other industries with their concern about it. Well, and for a small employer, you know, even if it's twenty five employees, you're spending a lot of money that could keep your company alive just on attorney fees trying to evaluate it. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the regulatory cost and the risk related to regulations is just an overlooked factor in the cost of doing business with the government. Um, people don't realize how much that cost and that risk is. And bigger companies are, are able to absorb that much easier than smaller companies. And it's one of the reasons why I think the federal government has found a lack of small businesses interested in pursuing federal construction contracts. Um, we've seen a almost 60% decline in small businesses that have been awarded federal contracts in the last decade um, by total number of companies, uh, just because I think that those companies are either not in existence anymore or they um, are, are interested in, in, in other types of work. They don't want to do the federal work because that cost risk is there and it makes them less competitive or, or it's just not worth it for them. They can't turn a profit. Um, you know, the margins aren't as big as they are somewhere else. So the small businesses are, we're seeing the death of them to some degree pursuing federal contracts and the, the regulatory overreach, death by a thousand cuts, all these different regulations, all these different big regulations like PLAs are, are hurting them. I mean, most small businesses in the construction industry are not unionized. I think something like 98% of all construction companies have less than 100 employees, which is which is crazy to think about. It is really a small business industry. Um, and a lot of that is because of the barrier to entry in the industry is pretty low. And, you know, you can start off uh, going through an apprenticeship program, learning the trade, get a pickup truck, open a small business, and grow and grow and grow. And it's really a pathway to the American dream when you think about it. And now the government is coming in and and, and trying to make that uh, pathway a lot more complicated with a lot more hurdles on it. Well, and if if you look at those small business owners, and just as you described, they they've worked their way up, 
And having known a lot of them, a lot of them are just like, yeah, screw that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to deal with the government to get work. So they just opt to not even bid on it. Right. They'll, they'll go talk to a private customer that isn't subject to all these, um, these, you know, complicated and costly requirements. They're still following the law with OSHA and all the, all those requirements, right. but the, the specific ones about procurement and all these, you know, every, every lawmaker's pet issue gets attached to some of these procurements uh, and regulations. It, it just, it's a, it's difficult to, to follow. I mean, if you're a small business and you're expected to read an 800 page uh, rulemaking on Davis Bacon, um, you know, I think that a lot of these guys are thinking, I, I'm not sure that I want to do that. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to go somewhere else where there's opportunity that, that without all this risk. Yeah. And you mentioned Davis Bacon, what's going on with that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've kind of mentioned the Biden administration's sort of handouts to organized labor and, you know, he, he's publicly said, I want to be the most pro-union president in history. So, it's not like he's doing this in a smoke filled back room that no one knows where this is happening. This is happening like out in the public finally. Right. We knew this right. was always happening, but now they're actually doing it in public and celebrating. And they're, you know, what, what he's done is trying to steer contracts to, to, you know, unionize contractors blatantly through project labor agreements, but they, but they've also issued a, a new rule overhauling regulations related to the Davis Bacon act, which is, um, and if you're not, your, your audience may not be familiar with it, but that's a, 1930s law that requires contractors to pay their employees um, a government determined wage and benefit rate. And uh, they want to totally overhaul the regulations around the Davis Bacon Act uh, to make it easier for the government to set rates that are um, in sync with the union collective bargaining agreements. And the theory there is that you, you, know, you, you set the rates at the union rates then unionized contractors and union labor will get more work and win more of these government contracts. Um, and so that's what they've done. They've, they've totally gutted the existing regulations. And there were some reforms made by the Reagan administration in the 1980s, you know, 40 years ago that were pretty common sense and pretty pro taxpayer on this issue. And they've just totally undone all those undone all the related court cases. And not only that, but they've gone a step further and tried to expand it onto off-site prefabrication and some transportation materials to job sites expanded the, the scope of the of the regulation even though it's not you know in statute um so abc is sort of a last resort is, is, has filed a lawsuit challenging um the department of labor's regulation in uh in texas and um you know that's proceeding as uh, going forward and, and so we'll, we'll see how that shakes out but yeah, uh, Acting Secretary Sue is the one who put this rule out, and, and uh, we're, we've named her in the complaint as well. So let me break that down a little bit, what you just said. So Davis-Bacon, which is prevailing wages, typically right. for government contract work, like on job sites. Yeah, the statutes, and, uh, any contract of $2,000 or more is subject to Davis-Bacon requirements. And then there's something called related acts, which are uh, basically federally assisted projects um, are subject to it as well. But now is this also including, for example, suppliers? Like you just mentioned, you know, I think you said drywall, but um, maybe not. But if you're hiring, a, well, let me rephrase this. If you've got a drywall contractor, not on the construction site, but you need to purchase drywall, does that have to be under Davis-Bacon? It's circumstantial, but what they wanted to do is that, like a lot of offsite prefabrication was being done by contractors um, who specialize in a certain type of you know material or a certain certain type of construction process, 
and they wanted to make sure that all that work was covered uh, by by prevailing wage by Davis Bacon. And a lot of these a lot of these contractors or or, or material developers didn't know whether it was going to a government job site or going to a private job site. Um, and the government was saying, well, we don't really care. We want to expand it to you. Um, they've walked back that provision a little bit in the final rule compared to what that proposed rule said. But we think it's circumstantially that there will be an application to um, offsite work that was really it's not prescribed in the underlying statute. And it's expanding it to new industries that really shouldn't have ever been covered by it in the first place. And that's part of the heart of the, the lawsuit that we filed. So in theory, government building being built, you're using prevailing wage contract workers on the construction project. You hire or you buy a bunch of windows from some window manufacturer. They're saying that potentially that could be, and I, just, I know you use the term circumstantial, which means yeah. it depends, right? Right. It depends. Yeah. But yeah, that's right. You've you got people who are bringing in you know, products or units of products that may be assembled offsite um, and and fitting them into the job site. And they're trying to get them to be those people who are doing that in a factory somewhere to be subject to it. And they're also getting people who are transporting the materials in a truck from that site to the job site to be covered by it too. And again, not in the underlying statute. So just wow. trying to, you know, expand this as much as possible without the consent of Congress, which I think is, you know, clearly problematic. Um, but again, this is this is a thing where the, the you know the Biden administration wants to make sure that the unions are doing this work. They think Davis Bacon by strengthening it and expanding its scope is going to get unions more work. And and the other day, taxpayers end up losing. I mean, we know that prevailing wage requirements increase the cost of construction. Um, you know, it's not just about increasing wages or making sure the wage rates are corresponding with the union rates. It's a bunch of the regulations that accompany that. For example, if the union wage rate is adopted by the Department of Labor, that means you have to pay it. Not only do you have to pay that, but you have to also follow the union collective bargaining agreements that accompany the union rates. So now you're talking about which union um, controls this type of work and what's the rate of pay for them. And contractors have to familiarize themselves with this, but they, but the government doesn't publish these collective bargaining agreements or these rules anywhere. So it's really a sort of regulatory cat and mouse game or cloak and dagger game where they don't know what the rules are, but they can get in trouble for not following the rules and the government isn't publishing the rules anywhere. So everyone's just like, why are we doing this? This is so dumb. And we've asked the Department of Labor to publish those things and they wouldn't even do that in this massive rulemaking. So you know, the fix is in. I, I think they want it to be intentionally complicated so that unionized contractors uh, win that work. And, and that's really unfortunate for, for all the parties involved. Yeah, I guess I'm honing in on this circumstantial part. And I, I don't want to get you to give too much conjecture here, but uh, let me back this out a little bit. You've got your construction workers. They're on a prevailing wage project. They're they're buying stuff from manufacturers and potentially those could be put under the prevailing wage edict, if you will, whether it's a rubber maker or a glass maker or something. And it, let me just use glass. So hypothetically, those window makers could be found at some point or I guess it'd be the contractor of not using prevailing wage work 
or workers. Right. They get, right. So there's a there's a process for you know complaints to be filed saying you you know contractor you violated the Davis Bacon Act. You weren't paying prevailing wage to the workers who are engaged in construction activities of and some other of some other company. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The uh, the the example you gave is a little bit not totally 100 percent accurate because there's like commercially off the shelf products that that wouldn't be subject to this but um but it gets a little more complicated for construction so you know we've got people who will prefabricate you know um like steel beams or um walls things, yeah yeah like the pretty pretty simple materials but if that could have been done on the construction job site they want it to be uh captured um essentially okay subject to the prevailing wage um so you know that's the that's the that was the, the concept there um so but it, you know that's just one aspect of the rule that's that's pretty pretty shocking i mean it, they're just straight up saying in the rulemaking we want to make sure that union wage rates are paid more frequently um they don't even try to say we want to have uh an average or some sort of better way to survey um the contractors to determine what the what, what the correct prevailing wage is you know, they, they actually, this is pretty bizarre if you think about government inefficiency, but in order to set the determined wage rate, they actually go out and they survey contractors um, with like paper and now it's finally electronic and say, what did you pay your workers on these private projects in this area? And they come up with a wage rate for every single type of construction, um, which is there's four different types that they look at for every different type of trade, which could be like about 20 different trades. And then um, in every single county in the country. So there's actually a wage that you have to figure out, depending on where you are geographically, um, for all of the different trades, all the different types of construction, and in every single county. And um, you just sort of scratch your head, like, why why are we doing this? (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. And there's all these issues. If you've got a project that spans two counties, what do you pay that person? Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of peculiarities that, that the system is created, but we've been saying there's easier ways to set this wage rate than doing this survey, which only unionized contractors fill out for the most part. There's very few non-union contractors that want to take the time to give the government the information that they're asking for. Um, why not do something like use Bureau of Labor statistics survey methodology or come up with an average or something like that? They, they want it to be um, the response because they want it to be the most frequently reported wage rate as the uh, union wage rate, um, as the government determined wage rate, because the, the union collective bargaining agreements are basically the same exact wage rate reported over and over again. So they've rigged the system to make sure that it's going to be a union rate um, adopted. So well, that's that's always kind of been a chief complaint about prevailing wage because it's mostly the unions that respond. Yeah, I mean it's it exactly that they have a bigger incentive to respond and and you know what's wild is is what is considered a valid response. I mean it, as few as the two responses from two companies covering six employees can set the wage rate for that trade in that area. And it's not much of a response, you know, they don't just like throw it out cuz they don't have enough data. They they really really are are letting a small sample dictate the rates of everywhere and this new rule is interesting because they're, they're, you know, they're saying if we don't get the way, uh, enough data, we're allowed to use urban rates and apply those to these sort of suburban marketplaces. Oh, geez. So, you know, you're going to increase the cost of construction in the rural areas, uh, and that's going to be that's going to hurt taxpayers who are just trying to build schools and bridges, and, and now they've got to pay, you know, 
uh, more expensive city rates for that. And it's just, it's, it's just, again, another example of um, bad policy driving up the cost of goods and services that all Americans have to pay for. Right. Well, I know we're coming up on a hard stop in a couple of minutes. Is there anything to look forward to in 2024? I mean, look, these are all political issues and these are all issues that um, are being driven by executive action for the most part. So a new president and a new White House, a new policy can undo all of this stuff. Um, and that's, you know, th- that's that's what that's one of the most important things people need to remember is that elections have consequences. And at ABC, we've got a philosophy, get into politics or get out of business because we get it. I mean, we know what happens when um, someone in the White House is interested in, in in putting you out of business. And that's the. That's the feel a lot of our members have right now. So they're hoping for some change, um, you know, next year. And they're just they just want to be left alone and have some regulatory certainty. And they want to build projects on time and on budget and safely. And they want to deliver on on the investments Americans have made in infrastructure and clean energy and everything else. And they feel like they're being muscled out just because um, they're they're not part of the club. And um, so we're hoping that the American public gets a sense of the scope of this and cares about it and uh, engages politically. And we've got some grassroots websites set up um, through our coalitions on a couple of these key issues. Um, but the the one on PLAs I'll share, if that's okay, Peter, sure. is uh, buildamericalocal.com. Um, and that's really urging the public to learn more about this project labor agreement final rule and also send some um, messages to Congress and to the White House opposing this and, and supporting some solutions that we've uh, we've uh, drafted legislatively with our friends in the construction industry. So, you know, that's... I'll, uh, I'll include yeah. that under the uh, audio portion of this as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, and then, uh, you know, we've got all kinds of um, information about this on our social media handle. If you're on Twitter, it's at ABC Gov Affairs that you can learn more about this stuff too. So... Um, but again, this is all this is all political, and it's not about policy, unfortunately. So um, elections have consequences. Well, on that note, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about next year as well. Yeah, that's going to be a wild one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben Brubeck, thank you for coming on to Labor Relations Radio again. It's great to see you as always. Great to be with you, Peter, and, and, and great to talk with your audience too. Thank you for having me on the program. So that was Ben Brubeck with the Associated Builders and Contractors, and I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to talk about next year. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a happy holiday season. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.